Good morning, all. It's 8.59, and I'm happy to see everyone here. So I'm going to take this one minute to explain very quickly what we should expect today. First, 9 o'clock is when we're going to start, and I promised you 10.15 is when we end, which means you, we don't go over into the coffee break like most of the conferences I attend, which just drive me crazy. This one is going to be run in a proper Swiss uh, fashion. Uh, after uh, Jeff Myron has made his presentation, there will be opportunity for discussion. Come to the microphones if you can, and if there's someone who has limited mobility, indicate that uh, to my colleagues, and we'll have a microphone brought to you. So we want to have everyone have the opportunity to participate in the discussion. Uh, and then, as I said, at exactly 10.15, we will stop. So now it is 9 o'clock, so it's an opportunity to introduce our first speaker, uh, Jeffrey Myron. Uh, Jeffrey comes from a, a, he's currently teaching at a small college in the Northeast, um, Harvard University, <laughs> and uh, is a rock star professor there, very, very popular with the students. He does advanced research, and he's a great teacher, and the students really appreciate learning economics from him. He's the author of a number of books and studies on libertarianism and also on applied economics. You've, you've got his full biography. His uh, work on the consequences of the drug war is very, very powerful and I think quite persuasive. <clears throat> he's been a fellow with the Cato Institute and he's just taken on a new position as the director of economic studies. So all of the economics work coming out of Cato is going to be subject to his supervision. We're very, very excited about that because it's an extremely important area and we have really top-level expertise now supervising it. So, for the pres first presentation, Jeffrey Myron. Can you hear that without that mic? So, First, I want to thank Cato and Tom for inviting me here. I thank you all for coming. As I was preparing and uh, think, look, taking a look at the place we're all coming to, uh, it reminded me that there are other places where libertarians gather to uh, talk about issues, to meet other libertarians, and so on. Many of you might have seen this article in the Washington Post that had a slideshow about the uh, annual pork fest up in New Hampshire. So this is what the accommodations look like. Very pretty setting. But you know, it had some distinctive features, uh, this gathering. Lots of interesting, nice people, some of whom brought their toys along of various kinds. Uh, lots of extracurricular activities. Um, lots, of, lots of slogans and symbols that many of us, most of us have great sympathy for. Um, people of all ages working together, partaking in various sort of Activities, excellent food, just like we're going to see here. Um, so I just thought it was sort of a useful introduction to say we came to a really nice place and I'm very happy to uh, be here. I'd also like to say that as libertarians, of course we all embrace everything we saw in those slides. Okay? It's not that we have any objection to people who are libertarian being unusual, loving guns, liking drugs, anything like that. It's just we wish the Washington Post and other sort of standard media outlets would sometimes present libertarians in settings like this, not just in settings like that, so the world would have a better sense of what libertarians are all about. Okay, if we can switch to the uh, other slideshow. 
Um, I'm going to talk today about consequential libertarianism. There we go. Um, so consequential libertarianism, I know it's an awkward word. It's too long a word. You can call it economic libertarianism if you prefer. It's a particular version. And of course, like all versions of libertarianism, it advocates for small government. But it does so in a particular way. Um, and what I want to do today is simply to explain what I mean by consequential libertarianism, cost-benefit libertarianism, economic libertarianism, talk about its implications, and offer it to you as a way to think about the sorts of issues that we'll be discussing here this week and that you uh, deal with uh, from a libertarian perspective all the time. So my outline is fairly simple. It'll be an explanation. Then there's going to be sort of all the conclusions. I'm going to tell you what I think this consequentialist perspective leads you to in terms of policies and give you a description of the way the world would be okay, if we followed the principles of consequential libertarianism. I'm going to refer to that as libertarian land. Um, and then in this talk this morning, okay, I'm going to talk about why I think those conclusions are right, an initial attempt okay, at explaining why you should believe the, the analysis from consequential libertarianism. Okay, and that's the catch, of course, from being here in this really pretty setting as opposed to being out in the woods. Here you have to learn a little economics okay, as part of the price you pay uh, for getting this, this very pleasant experience. In the afternoon, I'm going to give the second part of why you should believe that small government is much better, why taking this consequential perspective leads you to the policy conclusions that libertarians uh, share okay, by talking through things in um, an economics -y way. Okay, so what do I mean by consequential libertarianism? As a lot of you know, there are basically two flavors. There, in truth, there are many, many flavors, but for rough approximation for today, there are two flavors of libertarianism, the way we think about uh, what it means to be a libertarian. Okay? One, you could call philosophical. There are other words people use, deontological. Okay? And, and secondly, the alternative, what I'll call consequential or economic. Okay? The philosophical, okay, I'm grossly oversimplifying, and my apologies in advance to people who think I'm not doing it justice. The philosophical approach, roughly speaking, just says people have rights, frequently referred to as natural rights, and that policy should not infringe those rights. It's pretty straightforward to recognize that almost any government tax, mandate, subsidy, requirement, expenditure, whatever, regulation, and so on, does infringe at least somebody's rights, in some cases many people's rights, and therefore, from the philosophical perspective, almost all government policies, interventions in the economy are unacceptable because they infringe rights. Now, that's clearly a perspective that many people here are very sympathetic to. It may be the perspective that brought you to being a libertarian. Okay? My own experience is that when I try it on people who are not already libertarians, a lot of them don't find it persuasive. They think that it's sort of assertion. They don't see why they should agree with all of those, with those claims. Uh, they think that other principles might be reasonable, like it is just to redistribute income a lot from richer to poor. So I'm going to give you an alternative perspective on thinking about policy. So consequentialist perspective says, if someone is proposing that we intervene in some market via any of all the various policies, doesn't matter whether we're talking about Medicare or invading Iraq or outlawing drugs or whatever, we should ask a bunch of questions. What is the problem that this intervention, that this deviation from uh, laissez-faire okay, is supposed to fix? Okay? Convince me there's really a problem before you tell me that we need a new policy. 
convince me this problem is large and not small. If it's a relatively trivial problem, then of course, since all interventions have some cost, we should just ignore it and leave it alone. Convince me that this problem won't be taken care of by private mechanisms. Even if it's not already completely addressed by private mechanisms, maybe private responses will evolve to deal with this. Now, if you have accepted all those challenges and think you've met them and you think we still should intervene, tell me exactly how you think policy should intervene. Think about the different ways it might intervene. Take drugs as an example. You could outlaw drugs if you think that drug use is a serious problem that needs to be addressed. But there are much milder things you could do, like giving people education about the pros and cons of drug use, or imposing a tax on drugs that's small enough it doesn't generate a black market. So there are lots of possible interventions. Okay? Then, of course, you have to ask, will the intervention actually reduce the problem? Okay? In Washington, it's not enough. To, they never think about that. They say there is a problem. They're frequently exaggerating or wrong. But then they say, therefore, we should have this policy without saying, will this policy actually make that problem smaller? Okay, that's crucial. How much will it reduce the problem? And then, in some ways, most importantly, what do these interventions cost? Okay, and by cost, I don't just mean the dollars in the government budget. I mean all the negative effects that the policy might have, including, in particular, unintended consequences. If we had to sum up consequential libertarianism in two words, unintended consequences would certainly be those words. Okay, so then, consequential libertarianism just says, after we've thought through all that, we should intervene if, but only if, you're really persuaded that the whole set of consequences from the intervention okay, are better than not intervening, that staying out, that just having laissez-faire um, on, on, in a particular area or more broadly. Or relatedly, if there is some problem and it probably does require some, might, might suggest some government intervention, choose intervention A over B okay, if the consequences from A are better than now, in the way I've stated that, it might seem pretty trivial. You could say that's just cost-benefit analysis, or that's just thinking like an economist, looking at all the pros and cons of a given intervention and making the choice that seems to have the best combinations of pros relative to cons, of positives relative to negatives. Okay? And you can quickly see that you could do everything I've suggested, and I still wouldn't get to a conclusion. Why wouldn't you get to a conclusion? Because people could take that perspective but have very different views on what the consequences were of a given policy. Some people think that drug prohibition reduces drug use a lot, and some people disagree. Some people think the effect is very small. So if you have those two different views about the evidence, about the magnitudes or the direction of the consequences, then of course you might come to different conclusions about the desirability of a particular policy. Likewise, people often put very different weights or values on particular consequences. As an economist, I think that if government prohibitions reduce people's ability to use drugs, it's typically making them worse off. It's interfering with their choices. It's reducing their utility if you want to use the economics lingo. But many other people think that reducing drug use is a good thing, not a bad thing. So people have different values. Okay? Any issue you can think of, whether it's redistributing income, providing uh, subsidized health insurance, so on and so forth, Different people might bring very different weights, different values or perspectives about what are the desired effects of policy. And so, of course, they might disagree pretty radically about which policies. So having said that, your natural response to what I've presented so far should be, well, consequential libertarianism has no bite. It doesn't tell you anything. It just says you should be reasonable. You should be willing to debate all the positives and negatives. At some level, everybody agrees that. They don't always behave that way, but at some level they agree with that. Okay? 
So consequential libertarian is also an empirical claim in addition to the general perspective, the approach. It's a claim that the vast majority of cases when we add up all the pros and cons, okay, that the negatives are always going to outweigh, or excuse me, are almost always going to outweigh the positives, okay, and therefore the interventions are worse than laissez-faire. The treatment is worse than the disease, even in cases where there may be genuine negative aspects uh, of laissez-faire. So small government is better. Note, I didn't say small government is best, it's just better than the alternative of more government. Okay, um, and that by small, we mean really, really small. Okay? My argument will be, if we think in the way I'm, going to, we're, I'm discussing, we should remove all government adopted since the 90s, okay? and I mean the 1790s. Okay? So <laughs> we're talking really small. I could see some of you thinking, hey, this, this guy's a big government status. He only wants to go back to the 90s. No, uh, very, very small. So what I want to describe next is what I think government would look like if you applied that approach. Okay, now, of course, there are going to be people who radically disagree with my assessments of the evidence, with my sort of statements on what sort of positive and negative effects, but I'm ignoring that for now. I'm not going to be analyzing or debating these individual policies. I just want to sort of remind you what small government would really look like okay, and think about the specifics of where I think consequential libertarianism leads. So. Um, okay, so we'll come back to discussing why it's right. Now, to have that discussion, I thought it was useful to first just take a look at some measures of the size of government. So this shows us government expenditure as a percent of GDP going back to about 1790. So you can see that government was indeed really small. It's certainly relative to uh, current levels. Okay, the um, orange line, do I have a clicker? Orange line is federal, and of course, there really was hardly any state and local for most of this period. The data don't start until here. There was some state and local, of course, starting earlier, but the data don't start. Um, sorry, state and local is here. And then you can see that the total, okay, we're now at about 30 to 35% of GDP for you know, the first 100, 125 years okay, of the republic we were under 5% of GDP, even if you add in the small amount of state and local expenditure that would have occurred. So there really has been a radical increase in the size of government. Okay? When I say go back to the 1790s, we're talking about something like that. Um, you can look at it a couple of different ways. This is tax receipts okay, as a percentage of GDP. It tells roughly a similar story, except that, of course, budgets aren't balanced in every single year. So uh, there's a little bit of difference. And this is employment. Okay? This is sort of interesting for independent reasons. This line here, the orange, darker orange, is federal employment. And despite the increase in the size of government expenditure, federal government employment since basically the end of World War II, which is there, and the Korean War, which is there, and a the little nudge from the Vietnam War there, has really gone down. And that's a reflection of the fact that military expenditure has fallen dramatically in the U.S. relative to GDP. And the vast majority of federal government employees, okay, not vast majority, but a huge fraction, is the military. So indeed, that part okay, has gone down quite a bit. Okay? Um, state and local employment took this huge increase in the early post-war war period, but it's been relatively stable since then. And so the total overall goes up a lot in the first half of the post-war, and then is even declining a bit or stable with some blip. Okay? You might ask, well, how does that relate 
to here, aren't we getting sort of two different stories? Well, what it's telling you is that the taxation and the expenditure is basically going for entitlements. It's going for programs where the government doesn't need a lot of people to make a lot of expenditure. One guy with a computer can write a zillion checks for a lot of money. Okay? So in terms of the way government is getting bigger, it's the expenditure in, oops, sorry. Um, it's the expenditure in particular. It is not the employment per se. I also show you here, um, just for some comparison, the U.S. relative to other countries. Okay, lots of us have been dismayed at increasing government in the U.S. economy over the past, you know, whatever period. But in fact, the U.S. is still smallish. Okay, this is taxes as the share of GDP. Okay, relative to almost any similar-like economy. Okay, the places that we're bigger than are. You know, somewhat different in certain ways compared to Western Europe in particular, we're still at the relatively small government end of that uh, spectrum. Okay? And this is for expenditure, okay, where we're also not the worst offender, but this tells you partially we have big deficits. So even though our taxes relative to GDP are pretty small, okay, our expenditure relative to GDP okay, is somewhat larger. Still, there are a lot of countries that are doing substantially worse. And notice the scale. Countries, rich countries like France, are spending more than 50% of GDP okay, at the level of government. Okay, so that's just to give you an idea that government has indeed increased. Now, what would federal government look like in libertarian land? Okay? My claim is that there would be one, essentially only one federal government okay, activity, which is national defense. Um, in terms of dollars spent, persons employed, anything, it would swamp everything else. Okay? You can see that that's certainly not the case currently. It is somewhat in terms of employment, but not expenditure. Okay? And there would be a few miscellaneous other government activities. Okay? So if we're going to have some expenditure on national defense, we, of course, have to collect something in taxes. Relatively trivial by comparison today, but a little bit. There are some crimes that are, in their nature, federal crimes, treason, okay, kidnapping, piracy on the high seas. Perhaps there's a few miscellaneous things like staffing embassies and consulates, but this stuff is all just total peanuts okay, compared to what happens now. Okay, right now, there are many, many, many federal crimes growing all the time. A huge fraction of it is drug crimes, and so 60% or so of federal prisoners are there on drug charges. The federal government is doing much more than just uh, what I describe here, what I propose for libertarian. A different way to say it is, in libertarian land, we would eliminate okay, all of these departments. Okay. Ron Paul missed a golden opportunity in the 2012 debates okay, when each of the Republican nominees was asked, which three departments would you eliminate? Okay, and Rick Perry had his oops moment where he couldn't come up with his three. They'd also, of course, asked Ron Paul, and what he should have said was, are you kidding? I only get three? And he should have listed you know, all of these because that's where he is allegedly coming from. But he, he gave a sort of weaker answer, I thought. Probably in libertarian land, we might have these four. Not necessarily need even all of these at a department level, but there are some legitimate functions for the federal government uh, under each of those sort of areas. But again, that's very, very small. Um, of course, then, there are billions of other agencies that would not exist okay, under libertarian government, under consequential libertarianism. Okay? I'm willing to bet that 
bunch of you can't, can't even explain what each of these is, and this is a teeny fraction of the total. Okay? There are dozens and dozens and dozens more of agencies, federal government agencies with an alphabet soup of letters that intervene in every sort of part of, uh, oops, do not have the hang of this, um, of the economy, Federal Communications Kitchen, C Commission, the environment, intelligence from the CIA, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Labor Relations Board for union uh, negotiations and so on, funding of science from NIH and NSF, uh, and so on and so forth. So that's all gone in libertarian land. Now, of course, we should also talk about state government. For libertarians, thinking about state versus federal government is an important issue. Um, there would be one significant uh, activity from state governments in libertarian land, which is operating a criminal justice system and enforcing property rights and contracts. Okay? Now, that's somewhat similar to what occurs now, but much smaller. Okay? In libertarian land, states would not have laws against drugs, gambling, prostitution, and so on, okay? but they still would have laws against murder, robbery, theft, et cetera. You can imagine a few other state-level or city-level activities that libertarians could tolerate. Fire protection is plausible, perhaps some subsidizing of education, at least if done in a, in a, very, in a careful way, vouchers or tax credits. Uh, one or two others, but still teeny by comparison to today's standards. Okay? Another way to think about it is to, to ask what would be legal and illegal. Okay? As I said, at the federal level, almost no criminal law. At the state level, the basic stuff that is about enforcing property rights okay? and essentially nothing else. Okay? So no laws against gambling, weapons, drunkenness, and so on and so forth. Regulation. I'm arguing that if we think about the costs and benefits carefully, you should have no role for government in protections for unions, in antitrust laws, in anti-discrimination laws, in insider trading, environment, health and safety, financial markets, building codes, on and on and on. Okay? So, summarize what I've said so far. I've defined what I call consequential libertarianism. And we've described okay, what things would look like in libertarian land. It would look like roughly the 1790s in terms of the size and scope of what government could do. Although there were a few pretty nutty policies adopted in the 1790s too. The Alien and Sedition Acts, for example. Okay? But I haven't said anything about why consequential libertarianism is correct in coming to the conclusion that we want really small government. So now we get to talking about some economics. Okay, so what is economics? It's a combination of one fact okay, and one assumption. Okay. The fact is that resources are scarce, or stated differently, it's the laws of arithmetic. Two plus two is four. It's not five or 18 or whatever number some politician would like it to be. It says that at any moment in time, there's a finite amount of stuff in the world. And if we use it for one purpose, we can't use those same resources for another purpose. Okay? Even if you look over time, okay? you can't just magically assume there will be more in the future to pay for Medicare because over time governments face a budget constraint. If they try to uh, pay out more and borrow too much, okay, markets will stop lending to them and th that constraint, that the ability of a go any government to pay back its debts okay, is finite. Okay? So many times you'll see economics defined simply as the study of the allocation of scarce resources Okay, that's equivalent to what I'm saying here, 
it's slightly incomplete, but I really emphasize that the crucial thing is that resources are scarce. All the stuff about maximizing and utility and maximizing profits and all that is important, but it's less important than the laws of arithmetic. You can argue, as people say, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts, and the laws of arithmetic okay, are a fact. The assumption is that people have goals, most people have goals, and they pursue them as best they can, given the constraints. Now, notice that's deliberately much weaker than saying consumers maximize utility, for those of you who've taken an ECT course, or firms maximize profits, okay, and so on. Okay, goals that people have can be all sorts of things. They can include altruism and things you want to do for others. It can include selfishness, but it can include all sorts of good instincts, fairness, equity, however you want to define it, and so on. And it says you know, they pursue their goals as best they can. That's meant to be much less mathy, much less aggressive than saying they're brilliant, okay, utility maximizers who can figure out this complicated math in their head every time they walk into the grocery store or allocate their portfolios. It just says people have things that they want, ways that they want to run their businesses, way they want to run their lives, a kind of spouse they're looking for, whatever. Okay? And they try to accomplish those goals, okay, somewhat imperfectly, obviously, in many cases. But the fact that they do have some goal and that they're trying to accomplish them is going to have implications for the way uh, things work. OK. So crucially, what it means is people respond to incentives. Okay? Economics says they do the best they can, given the constraints. Okay? Given the constraints is crucial. If we didn't have the given the constraints, then of course everyone would have infinite utility. Every individual business would have max, infinite profits. Everybody would just consume as much as they wanted. It has to be, the only rational way to think about this is subject constraints. You don't have a huge amount of, an unlimited amount of money you can spend at a point in time. Governments can't borrow without bound and pay for stuff that people seem to want because sooner or later the constraint is going to kick in. So the implication is, if the constraints change, then behavior is going to change. Okay? You're doing the best you can subject to constraints, which means you are up against a constraint. Okay? You are doing the best with, to spend the money you have, make your life pleasant. Okay? But if you had more money, you would spend more, so you're probably spending up to the amount of money that you have, or you're saving some of it for the future, but that's still recognizing there's a constraint. You can't consume, you might be able to consume less today and more tomorrow, but you can't just consume more today and tomorrow without regard for your constraint. So whenever things happen that means what you, the limits on your behavior have changed, you are likely to want to adjust your behavior because that change in the constraints has affected what it's desirable for you to do. So incentives matter. And incentives matter is, in some sense, the two-word summary of all of economics. It's the, it's, it's the one thing that almost all economists do agree about, okay, even though they sometimes disagree about exactly which in incentives are important. But we think of people as behaving in this way, and that means that they're going to respond okay, to changes in their environment, which change their constraints. And the crucial constraint that we want to talk about is policy. So what are examples? Consumers will buy less of a good if a policy imposes taxes on that good. Okay? 
If you're going to have to pay a tax to purchase apples, the total amount you can spend on apples and oranges has gone down, you might decide you love apples so much you're just going to give up oranges and buy only apples, or you might substitute okay, toward consuming some oranges. And typically, we think people will partially substitute toward doing something else, which has become less relatively costly if another thing is being taxed. If the government taxes your leisure, you might consume less leisure. If the government taxes your income, you'll work less hard to produce income, and so on and so forth. Okay? It means that firms, when they face changes in their environment, in particular coming from policy, will change their behavior. If there are high tax rates on profits earned in one country or one state, firms are going to want to go someplace else where they can make higher after-tax profits. Okay? So the government policy will change the incentives, change your incentive to locate in one area versus another, okay? and that is going to be, show up in the behavior of the firms in the economy. Okay? Politicians okay, are people too, despite all evidence to the contrary. Okay? Politicians will change their positions if public opinion changes because they respond to incentives. Their incentives are to get reelected. They may also care about the good and the just and the whatever, but okay, most of their behavior suggests they put a lot of weight on getting reelected. So when public opinion changes on marijuana legalization or whatever, politicians change their positions because they're responding uh, to incentives. So this is just a simple illustration. This is a classic uh, economic diagram, most of you know about the Laffer Curve, named after um, Arthur Laffer, uh, an economist, uh, now works for a consulting firm, used to teach at UCLA. So this graph is the tax rate that the government is imposing on people's income. It could be as low as zero. It could be as high as 100%. Technically, government could say it wants to collect 110 or 100 billion percent, but of course, you can't take more than 100%. And this is the amount of tax revenue that the government's going to collect. So have zero tax, tax rates are zero, you collect no revenue. If you raise the tax rate, you will tend to raise okay, more revenue, as measured on this axis. But the key point is, focusing at the end for the moment, if you had a tax rate of 100%, then no one has any incentive to earn or report income. So you collect zero revenue, and plausibly, the relation sort of goes up and then comes down. Okay? All I want this for, for the moment, is to say people re will respond to incentives. If the tax rate gets too high, okay, then people will either work less or they will work similarly but cheat more on their taxes or engage in non-taxed activity, whatever, so that at some point, okay, the revenue you get starts to go down as the tax rate goes up. Again, despite the fact that many economists make fun of it because they don't like the conclusion that high tax rates can be bad, okay, they all agree that this makes sense because it's just saying incentives matter. Okay, so now I want to talk about um, unintended consequences, UCS for unintended consequences. Economics implies that, that uh, incentives matter, and that raises the possibility that when you impose a policy, change a policy, you're going to have some consequences different than what you were hoping for, than what you thought ex ante. Policies always have stated objectives, and typically the stated objectives are very high-minded and sound very just and good and wonderful for everybody. Okay? But okay, policies can, in fact, change incentives in ways that no one, not, neither the advocates nor the opponents of any particular policy, wanted or, and in many cases, never even anticipated. And that's a crucial reason, in some sense the crucial reason, why interventions are undesirable. Basically, it's saying the treatment is worse than the disease, 
even if you think that there's a problem to be addressed, even if you agree that there's some policy which might tend to ameliorate that problem, it may also create other things that you don't want that are even worse. So look at some examples. There's a bunch of examples on this slide. I probably won't uh, go through all of them. This thing is telling me there's 44 minutes left. Is that right? Okay. Um, the Endangered Species Act. Okay? The Endangered Species Act says that you can't destroy um, la lands on which a species exists if the uh, Environmental Protection Agency says that that species is endangered. Okay? So you would think that would help protect you know, the spotted owl and the snail darter and uh, the pink flamingo and all those sorts of things. But, and it may do that to some degree in some instances, but it also can easily have a different effect. Imagine you own some timber in the West, and you've seen the EPA go to various timber-owning companies, uh, timberland-owning companies, and say, you can't cut your trees down, okay, because the spotted owl lives in this part of Oregon, but you live in some other place that the EPA hasn't come to yet. If you're thoughtful, you might say, huh, let's cut it all down now. Because if I cut it down now, I can at least get some revenue from having sold all the timber that's already there. And then there won't be any, any owls on the property because there won't be no trees on the property. And I avoid the implication of the Endangered Species, uh, Endangered Species Act in basically stealing my property, telling me I can't use it simply because this endangered species happens to exist on the land. So an economist at the University of Chicago, named John List, okay, went around and looked at the use of land by places that seem to be at risk for having an endangered species discovered on their land, okay? and they indeed found that the rate of destruction of you know, developing that land, I shouldn't say destruction, the rate of development of that land okay, was much faster than places where clearly there was not much scope for an endangered species, exactly as the unintended consequence okay, of this analysis suggests. Okay? So, you might think that the Endangered Species Act is really well-intentioned. Everybody likes to know that there are always going to be whales in the ocean and stuff like that. But your good intentions of protecting Bambi has to run up against the unintended consequences of policy. That's a classic example. A much simpler example is soak the rich tax policies. Okay? People who want government to keep spending in the way it's spending on Medicare and Social Security and so on and so forth tend to say there's not really a problem that our deficits are getting bigger. We just have to tax the rich more. Okay? But one, they're missing the fact that even if they confiscated all of the income that the rich earn, it would put a teeny, teeny drop in the bucket in terms of paying for future deficits. But in addition, if a given country announces really, really high tax policies, okay, the rich are going to go elsewhere. Or they're going to hide their money in the Cayman Islands and the Isle of Guernsey and all that sort of stuff. So you're actually going to collect less revenue from soak the rich tax policy. That's an unintended consequence. It's also exactly the Laffer curve that we looked at a minute ago. Um, corporate income taxes, we briefly discussed. The unintended consequences are when they're high in your country relative to some other country, corporations flee. That's a big controversial issue right now okay, because these inversions, that is companies merging with overseas companies to obtain lower tax rates, has become more popular. Okay, there's been a wave of it recently, and so the lefty politicians have gone on a rampage saying that this is evil. President Obama has said that it's unpatriotic. I actually think that tax avoidance is a really patriotic act because it helps expose how stupid the tax code is, uh, but I probably won't convince President Obama on that. Uh, minimum wages rent control okay, are meant to keep housing affordable for people with low incomes. Okay, in fact, one of their effects 
is to discourage okay, people from building rental housing because you know if you build it, you can't charge a market rate, make a decent rate of return, and so people build fewer houses, and that tends to keep housing prices high rather than housing prices and rental prices low. There's a great paper uh, by several economists at MIT coming out in the, one of the lead journals in economics this month or next month that shows that when Cambridge legalized rent, Cambridge Mass, okay, well, I shouldn't say Cambridge did it. Cambridge voted against it, but the state uh, voted to ban rent control statewide okay, in Massachusetts back in 1994, and it affected three communities, Cambridge, Brookline, and Boston, uh, and the data were the best for Cambridge. They found that there was an increase in the value of the housing stock in Cambridge of about $7 billion okay, as a result of the end of rent control, precisely as the analysis would suggest. Okay? So unintended consequence, making housing more expensive rather than less expensive because people respond to the incentives. High stakes testing and accountability. Now this is one that I think catches up many people who lean conservative libertarian because they correctly say that if no one pays a penalty for getting lousy grades or for being a lousy teacher, it's not obvious why it should improve, why it should get better. And they say we should introduce something that will hold people accountable, which at a very broad level doesn't sound unreasonable. But then they make the leap of we want government to be the person that holds people accountable, as opposed to letting parents okay, hold teachers at schools accountable to a greater degree. So we've introduced over the past 20 years all these high stakes tests, which are now given schools across the country required as part of um, No Child Left Behind and so on. And it might affect the incentives of some teachers to teach better because if the students okay, do poorly on a high stakes test, the teacher doesn't get certain bonuses, the teacher in principle could be fired or moved to a different school. Okay? So yes, high stakes testing might tend to create a good incentive, but it also creates a bunch of other incentives. So there's widespread documentation that schools have sent kids they knew were going to get low grades home the day the test was being given, or called ahead and told their parents not to send them to school that day. Okay? They have systematically sort of monkeyed who was defined as a non-English proficient student and who was, because the NELP students don't get included in the test scores. Some teachers have been caught literally in the act of cheating, of taking all the Scantron sheets and erasing the little you know, filled in pencil marks that the teachers put in, the, sorry, that the students put in, and putting in the correct answers. So yes, high stakes testing changed incentives. It changed them in two ways, some good, some bad. Far from obvious, that was a good approach. Uh, let me skip that one for a moment. Uh, mention this one, flood insurance subsidies. There's been lots of discussion of that in the past few years, partially because of uh, Katrina and so on. One set of uh, bad effects of Katrina were all of the uh, casinos along the coast okay, that were wiped out. Okay? Why did that happen? Why were they all located along the coast? Well, partially because flood insurance was subsidized to locate upon the coast. So again, we have an unintended consequence of creating more damage rather than less via government policy. Uh, skip that one. I'm going to come back to that later. Um, Food and Drug Administration is a favorite, so I'll talk about that one briefly. The Food and Drug Administration requires pharmaceutical manufacturers who want to, want to introduce a new drug okay, to go through various kinds of testing to make sure those drugs are safe and efficacious. Okay? That doesn't sound so evil, okay? and it may indeed at times keep an ineffective or a drug with serious side effects okay, off the market. But even if it's doing that, 
And even if the marketplace wouldn't take care of that completely on its own, okay, many of us would argue the marketplace would do a perfectly good job of that, but even if not, the FDA has another okay, effect, an unintended consequence, okay, for those drugs which are going to end up okay, being valuable and are going to get approved, the FDA causes there to be far more expense and far more delay in their getting to market. And indeed, the FDA has all sorts of bizarrely sort of stupid rules about what evidence it will ex accept. In many cases, drugs have been introduced in Europe well before they were in the US. There's lots of evidence from the actual practice of medicine about whether those drugs are useful. Okay? And they seem to be, and they don't seem to have unintended side effects. So why not just approve those drugs right away and not make them go through the trials all over again in the US? In fact, the FDA tends to make them go through it all over again. So it's not an exaggeration to say that the FDA kills because it keeps good drugs off the market even at the same time that just in some cases it might okay, keep some efficacious drugs uh, from getting onto the market. Wage and price controls was actually sort of interesting. One of the reasons that we have employer-provided health care okay, is because in World War II the wage and price controls meant that companies were facing shortages of workers. They couldn't hire people because they couldn't raise wages. And they got a ruling from the government that said they could circumvent that by offering benefits, okay, including non-tax benefits such as health insurance. Okay? So you don't think of the fact that Medicare is out of control and health insurance is tied to your employer and all that as being due to something which happened in World War II, but in fact was precisely due uh, to the adoption of wage and price controls in World War II. Okay, so again, let me summarize where we are. Consequential libertarian says we should choose policies based on their consequences. That's not controversial. Basically, everyone agrees. But there's still huge differences in what people think the right policies are. Okay, so if everyone more or less accepts the framework for thinking about policy, for analyzing policy, how can they come to such different conclusions? They might have very different assessment of the consequences, okay? or they might put very different weights on the consequences. Okay. Um, so this afternoon, okay, we're going to talk about two things. Okay. We're going to talk about why we should believe the consequences are generally bad. So I've given you sort of an initial impression of that with all the examples of the unintended consequences. But I want to argue much more broadly that it's inevitable that interventions are going to do a whole range of bad things that their tendency to do those bad things is going to be consistent across a huge range of policies. So your presumption should always be okay, that interventions are going to make things worse. Now, it's not meant to be a theorem. It's meant to be a strong presumption because the nature of interventions is they inevitably do a bunch of things uh, that we don't like. Okay? Um, and in addition to that, okay, they don't often work. They don't often even accomplish their stated goals so if a policy isn't doing what it says it's going to do and it's having some, some negative side effects, it's clearly a bad idea. The second thing I'm going to do is argue that agreeing on values isn't crucial. Well, that part is probably going to be sort of more, certainly outside this room, would be more controversial. But I want to argue that whether you think policy should focus on liberty, on economic efficiency, or on fairness, justice, morality, or anything else, it should still do exactly the sets of things that I've argued so far, argued for so far. Okay? So naturally, okay, to decide which is a good policy, 
we have to say what's our objective, what's our criterion for choosing one policy versus another. So we have to state what the objective of policy could be. One objective would be it should maximize liberty. Okay? One objective could be it should maximize GDP per capita. A different objective could be it should try to have high GDP per capita, but it should make sure that whatever we produce is distributed fairly, where fairly is defined in some way. Okay? So what I'm going to say is it doesn't matter which of those you think is the right thing to do. You should still endorse all the small government policies uh, that I've described, okay, whether you care about efficiency, liberty, or equity. So the bottom line for this morning is small government is best. Okay, and um, I'm going to stop here, take questions, and we will uh, pick up the rest of the argument this afternoon. Thank you. There are there are mics spread around if you I will repeat the question if necessary. The Peter Principle. Lawrence J. Peter. Right. right. Uh, uh, subtitled, uh, it was a work of humor. Uh, when it came out in 1969, it was, it was entitled uh, The Salutary Study of Archaeologies. And the fundamental Peter Principle was named after him. His name was Lawrence J. Peter. He died some years ago. But it, was, it was, came out as a work of humor. Uh, the Peter Principle itself was that everyone within a hierarchy or bureaucracy rises to their level of incompetence. Right. And uh, anyway, you've, uh, uh, I recommend it for anyone that's here. It's very easy to remember. His last name was Peter, P-E-T-E-R. He was, a, uh, I believe, a PhD of economic uh, or education in Canada. But uh, it what came out as a work of humor. It was a big seller on the New York Times bestseller list for several years. Um, over time, uh, I've talked to several sociology professors, and they're now using it as a textbook in some of their graduate-level sociology courses. And, and if you go to uh, Barnes & Noble to buy a copy, it's in the management section rather than the humor section. But a lot of what and, you covered and, and in your talk covers that. And I think it's in the uh, management section that. because, unfortunately, I think that applies to private as well as public activity. Yeah. <laughs> Any organization I've been associated with. Anyway, I enjoyed your talk. Was at work, it was very, very well done. I have a little note I'd like to leave with you when this is over. So. What are the best empirical examples of uh, governments where they where they've moved towards libertarianism, and um, where you can see the results? And the second question is, what countries are the most libertarian uh, today? Um, examples that have moved toward libertarianism, there certainly are. Although we would hardly describe most of those places as libertarian, so. The former Soviet Union is certainly less controlled by central government than it was 30 years ago. India has substantially liberalized its economic policies. China, the same thing. Vietnam, in some ways. Um, so there are examples that have moved in the right direction, but they're still a long, long way from being where we might sort of think they should be. Um, the most libertarian, I, it would 
probably go with the countries that are in the heritage, uh, economic freedom, and political freedom indices. Now, the U.S. is no longer that far up there. Okay? It's in, I think it's still now in the top 15, but not the top 10. Um, New Zealand, I think in the most recent one, came out at the top. Canada does surprisingly well. I actually have dual citizenship with Canada, so I keep checking the tax rates there and here to decide where I should live. Um, it's hard, to, it, you know, it's a little bit hard because I don't think of any of them as being even close to being uh, libertarian. But in terms of the direction that policy has gone, while you know, Western Europe, U.S., in our view, is clearly going in the wrong direction, over the last 20, 30 years, significant parts of the world have certainly moved in the right direction, even if not nearly enough. One campaign Ronald Reagan famously promised to abolish the Department of Education and famously failed to do so. Right. Why? Why did he fail to eliminate the Department of Education? They're asking about politics, not economics. <laughs> um, I mean, the cynic or slash economist would say it wasn't in his interest <laughs> to actually push on that. It would have been controversial. It wouldn't have really gotten him that many brownie points with the people he wanted for his reelection or anything else. So he let it slip to the back burner. Um, you know, Ron Reagan was certainly much better from a libertarian perspective on some issues. But he wasn't a consistent libertarian across all issues by any means. I mean, invading Grenada, for crying out loud, it's got to be as unlibertarian. Reagan, but there's a constituency, the every single agency that he worked with. Oh, absolutely. How has it never? How, okay, so a broader question of how we ever sort of change things. We had a fun discussion at breakfast with several people about that. So an academic's tendency, and to some degree, like the Cato tendency is to be a little bit ivory towerish to sit there in our offices and say this is the right policy based on these arguments. And as you said, all these policies exist for a reason. They help somebody. Agricultural subsidies help farmers. Um, you know, and Medicare helps, seems to help people who are you know, elderly. And everybody expects or hopes to get to age 65 and collect Medicare. So cutting Medicare is not a trivial thing. Um, so it, the politics are terrible. The easy fixes, the ones which nobody is really going to be hurt by much and would help some people, those have presumably already happened because they were relatively easy. So the argument that was being made at breakfast was that libertarians should spend maybe a little bit more time trying to encourage their friends, their family, anyone who's frustrated with limits placed on them by government to realize they have more options than they think. Those options typically have costs. Okay, you can send your child to a private school. Okay, maybe you can get the tuition reduced via tax credit or something. But you can get out of the public school system at some price. Okay? You can homeschool, again, at some price, because you have to put the time in. And many people, that's not easy to do. You can buy health care that's not reimbursed by Medicare. You can just say, I'm going to find somebody, doctor, who will provide this medication, this operation, this diagnostic, whatever, who doesn't take Medicare, but I will pay for it out of my pocket. And that, if there's a lot of that, a lot of people who realize the system is lousy and are willing to bear some cost to help draw attention to it, then maybe that's a really useful part of allowing people who are arguing about policy to say, the reason all you people are frustrated is because the policy is stupid. Okay? If 
Okay, we didn't have public schools, we just let everyone get tax credits or vouchers and subsidize education that way. People wouldn't be paying twice for education for their kids, and that would be better. But that's, that's, there's no good answer for that. I mean, if there were a good answer, I think we would have changed government long ago. Yeah. Um, how would you uh, think that the best way to approach people particularly skeptical to our way of thinking that programs, particularly those aimed at poverty, like you know, ending welfare will actually uh, increase, we want to end welfare for the betterment of people. How do, you, how do you think the best way to approach that is to people who are skeptical? I mean, I think one part is evidence, and I'll show you some evidence on exactly that question later, um, showing them that uh, the, all the money we've spent in reducing poverty okay, seems to have played a very small role in reducing poverty, and basically what's reduced poverty has been the, the uh, increased availability of markets, the use of reliance on markets, not just in the U.S., okay, but across the world. Whatever you think about you know, Thomas Piketty's view of wealth inequality, income inequality in rich countries like U.S. and France, over the whole world, wealth inequality has gone down dramatically because the number of people who are desperately poor has you know, shrunk by a billion people or something like that. Okay, so I think you have to draw people's attention to the evidence. I mean, a different side is, draw their attention to the fact that particular policies don't have the effects that they claim to have. For some reasonable people, that might make a difference. Yes? Hi. So I was squirming a little bit during your talk. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it looks like the only founding principle that you proposed for your um, consequentialism is that government should be small. And I, I think the, and you admitted it was a little um, dismissive of uh, philosophical or deontological libertarianism to, um, uh, you know, you got sort of one line in there. But the idea that small government is good is, I think we all agree, but I think that you could have also a lot of people that are on America's left that would not, you know, be willing to sit down at a table and agree that small is good, but it's as small, for them, it's as small as necessary, as small as is necessary to get the goals that they want, which is, for example, redistribution of wealth and equality of outcome rather than equality of, of opportunity and et cetera. And somebody could have come up here from, or we'll just pick another small university, say Berkeley, and given a talk with exactly the same title and produced um, an expansion of all of the agencies that you had and thrown in a whole another series of acronymical uh, agencies and said that you know, this is also a small government. It's the smallest one necessary to do all of those important things. And the absence of any um, philosophical principles whatsoever other than small, I don't know how you can actually carry on an appropriate argument. So I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but let me respond in a few ways. So first of all, uh, my task was to explain the consequentialist approach. So there's gonna be lots of people talking to us through the week who are talking about the philosophical perspective. Second of all, you're certainly right that people can present analyses that claim that various existing government things uh, accomplished their goals, and I'm saying I think that they're wrong. I think that- well, I agree with you. Okay, so, um, but, but that is a messy, detailed debate 
somebody's evidence against my evidence and so on and so forth. And in many cases, the evidence is certainly not clear and all that. But then I guess the third thing I'd say is to lots and lots of people that I talk to, the philosophical approach strikes them as completely unconvincing. They say, you've asserted that that's the right moral principle for choosing policies. I have a different moral principle for choosing policies. I'm right, you're wrong. You say, I'm right, you're wrong. It doesn't get us anywhere. I think that a virtue of the consequentialist approach is you can push people to state their assumptions. You can force them to say, look, what do you think will be the effects of your preferred policy versus my preferred policy? And then you can maybe debate them, but is there really any evidence to support that effect? You can force them to say, what do, do you think this particular effect of policy is a positive or a negative? They, you know, the drug use that, change in drug use that's caused by drug prohibition. Okay? I think that's, okay, a negative, forcing people, keeping people from being able to use drugs. Other people think it's a positive, but at least when we talk about it consequentially, we have that conversation. We can talk about how much crime is caused by drugs, how much crime is caused by drug prohibition, how much corruption is due to drug prohibition, and so on. So I think it gives you an opportunity with some people. I definitely don't think the approach for different people is the same. It gives you an approach for some people to have a debate about evidence, okay, who won't listen to you about philosophy, it also, I think, gives you a way to compromise. The, sometimes the philosophical approach has a tendency to seem like it's saying every single intervention is equally evil. Every intervention infringes rights, therefore all interventions are illegitimate. There's no way to think about compromise or degree of badness. So we might like there to be no government support for education. Okay, zero, period, end of story. But we would certainly think it's a big improvement we got rid of all federal involvement in education, okay? And then going down the state level, if the way that support for education was provided was less, and if the, way, if the amount provided was less, and if the way it was provided was with a lot of choice via charters or vouchers or tax credits rather than through public schools. But if you start with all government support of education is wrong, period, you can't ever have any sort of way of compromise. Okay, and I'll accept that, although I do think that it's possible to be have a more philosophical bend and still be willing to give on some of those and sort of merge a little bit of the two. So I guess on a spectrum, and you can be an extreme consequentialist or an extreme deontologicalist and be unwilling to budge on either. And the question I think, for at least for me, is where do I start? I tend to start more from principles and then um, um, based on consequences, leave some of those principles behind as opposed to starting on the other side. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Yes. Hi. Um, this question is coming from a philosophy student who likes to publish on these things, but who also uses economic data to support her claims as well. And my question is kind of about economics in general. So I recently came from an undergraduate conference in Buffalo where I saw a um, fellow McNair scholar uh, present on why we shouldn't be measuring Africa's success as a country by GDP because it's so contingent on really specific ways of measuring in each country. And her example was Nigeria. She says Nigeria is growing very quickly economically, but 
their GDP isn't showing that. And so when I'm using economic data like GDP to support my claims in my papers, I'm wondering what your advice would be as an economist um, for how I explain why GDP is kind of a universal, um, universally respected like term we can all, it, it, or, or if it isn't, and if it means the same thing. So there are some legitimate concerns about GDP. GDP doesn't measure illegal activities. So part of what some countries produce is underground provision of drugs, gambling, prostitution, and so on. So GDP is certainly incomplete, even in de developed countries that have relatively good data collection. Okay? GDP doesn't account for bads. Okay? It's goods, the things we measure that we like, but it leaves out pollution. So you might have a country that was producing a lot of stuff, but it was simultaneously putting a lot of toxic waste into rivers, streams, tons of air pollution. So in terms of overall well-being, the people in that country might not feel so great because they had lots of toaster ovens, but they couldn't breathe long enough to use their toaster ovens. Okay? So that's a standard criticism. And the third, I think, most important standard criticism of conventional GDP is it leaves out leisure. Okay? Comparing two countries at a point in time or a country over time, if you're produced for any given amount of GDP, you might be, care a lot about whether you're producing it by working 20 hours a week, 50 hours a week, 80 hours a week. One thing that's happened in the US is that average hours have gone down dramatically. Okay, so not only have we seen GDP per capita go up, but we have a lot more leisure time in which to consume that stuff, so that's a good thing. Now that being said, there are a lot of nutty okay, criticisms of GDP because it doesn't take into account fairness or distribution or whatever. Well, it's not meant to take those things into account. So that's not a very sensible criticism. Not, or I think badly motivated criticisms want to replace it with something that like, measures happiness. And that is going to be so ephemeral, so subject to the bias and the way the questions are posed and stuff that I don't think it's likely to be useful. Um, if you want to worry about distribution as well as about you know, averages, about GDP per capita, then you should introduce one of the standard measures of the inequality of resource allocation, such as you know, a Gini, what's called a Gini coefficient or things like that. So mainly the criticisms, I think, are badly motivated, unless you're talking about very poor countries where their data collection is lousy, so their GDP data might not be great just because they don't have good records. Thank you. Yes. Good morning. Uh, Three comments. I was a uh, really minor comment. I was surprised that in your list of mere and authorized federal crimes, you included kidnapping. Um, uh, that sort of was strange to me. Uh, that, of course, requires us to have an FBI and requires us to have something like a federal police force. And it, I just didn't see how it rose to the level of piracy and treason, and also you left out counterfeiting. But, I, but that's I, all irrelevant. No, I concede. You're right. That's all irrelevant. Yeah. So I would sort of revise your, I'd mock yeah. and, re, and yeah. revise that list. Uh, second comment, uh, you talked about unintended consequences. Uh, that gives policymakers too much credit. Uh, and by that, I mean that presumes that their intention was something other than re-election. They have a stated intention, uh, and you're measuring the 
unintended consequences against their political cover, against the reason they're voting for something, but the reason they voted for something really is to get reelected, the public, uh, sort of public choice. So that gives far too much credit to policymakers, and I was sort totally of- Totally concede that to you. Okay. <laughs> and the third point is the concept of small, gov of small government. Uh, one has to be careful because if you allow the other side to take control of the discussion of the size of government, it can degenerate into a headcount. And I don't frankly care so much how many government workers there are, but rather the effect of government, whether it's a few people or a lot of people, on my life. Sure. Uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't take that many workers to have a very, very liberty-denying federal government. It just takes the right laws. So when you discuss size of government, it should be, size should be the impact upon us, not the headcount. I totally accept that, but just elaborate that slightly. That's part of why I had both the number of employees and the total expenditure. I partially just wanted to point out that if you think about government growing in terms of number of people, number of agencies, whatever, you'll be somewhat misled because that number hasn't gone down, but expenditure for Medicare, Social Security, other stuff has ballooned, um, and so there indeed is much more government intervention, much more government interference. I agree. Can I switch back to the side? So my question is a little bit on the philosophical side, and I'll try to not show my economical bias so much with it. It's, it's that I think that the consequentialist approach, it has a, a, a merit which is it, it's, it's a valid argument for people who are not libertarians and they are a little more moved by it. But on the other hand, it's a strong point. It's also its weak point, which is empirical and data. And which Because for me, as an economist, I try to show the unseen, to bring it, to make it seen. So uh, as a little bit like Friedrich Hayek said when he got his Nobel Prize, when we are trying to make a point as an Austrian economist or something, you are trying to show people things that are basically not there. So right. this, the consequentialist approach, I think it might be, it might, might, it might be taken by the collectivists, you know, because they can show the good effects of big government as well as we, are, we cannot show too much of those bad effects. Well. I guess I don't really agree because yeah. I think that the, the uh, big government types have a hard time showing the benefits of the interventions they propose. Okay. And I think we often have a pretty easy time showing the negative effects of the things we oppose. Um, now, you're right that there are some negative consequences that are fairly ephemeral. I'll talk about some of these this afternoon. One thing, one effect is respect for the law. If you have a law that's going to be frequently violated, then maybe everybody notices that and starts to think, gee, laws are for suckers. Why should I obey these laws when nobody else is obeying laws? Yeah. And it spreads more broadly, and that's probably not good for civil society. But it's hard to measure that. It would be hard to prove such an effect. Yeah. But I'm happy to accept limitations of the consequentialist approach as long as the philosophical people accept that they're limitations of the philosophical approach. Yeah, yeah, we do. So I just we don't, do. I, I, I really think they're the same thing. I think that the philosophical principles 
are basically shorthands for consequences. You know, so why do we think killing is wrong? Well, there's some consequences from a killing. One person is dead, and we take as given that that person is worse off. That's a negative consequence. Why do we think that freedom is good or liberty is good? Not, we don't really just think it is good because it is good. We think it is good because with liberty, with freedom, people can do things that they want to do. They can you know, produce more stuff economically in terms of just measurable stuff, but they also they can be more creative. They can pursue their passions. They can live their lives in the way they want to live. So I think it's more of a shorthand for a set of consequences and these are two different languages. So I'm not trying to argue against yeah, the philosophical. Yeah. I, I, I just think, think that the consequences language is a useful language to have as well. Yeah, yeah, I think they both, they, they like complete each other. I, I, well, I'll get to that again okay. in, the, in the afternoon. Thank you. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> this may be a little way out there, but looking over the history of uh, mankind and civilization, different empires that have risen and fallen, uh, would you agree that Typically, governments um, evolve in in the way they administer themselves over the history of great civilizations. They evolve to be better, uh, worse, uh, smaller. It, it does not. It, it's kind of it's a little bit unpredictable, but they they never stay the same. It's always dynamic. Um, I I certainly agree. They evolve. They change. Overall, I unfortunately think that. Uh, for the most part, they evolve in the wrong direction. They get bigger uh, and bigger. That's probably right. That's why there's, they fall. There are these few exceptions I talked about in response to the first question. There's that's some, why they fall. Uh, they fall, but when they fall, do they get replaced by some nice, you know, you know, libertarian government? Well, they no. might get replaced by a military dictatorship. They might get replaced by a different tyrant. So, yes, they change, mm. but it's not obvious that they change. And they don't. You know, the new person doesn't say, "Okay, let's start from scratch and wipe out every policy from the predecessor okay. with a clean slate." Um, I've, I've gotten mixed results here, but uh, I'm a fan of Wikipedia. I like the ability of the internet right. to communicate in, in multiple different languages. Uh, uh, with the, that ability, would you see us ultimately evolving into some sort of a one world order? I think it's possible. I think it's sort okay. of interesting. I've thought about it, but. And then uh, just the, uh, the, the politicians, the people, the elites, the people with the power, don't want to give it up. Mm -hmm. And technology is a really useful combatant to that. Uh -huh. you know, but it's unclear to me which is going to win, uh -huh. because uh, the people with the power can do things to try to interfere with the technology. The Chinese government shutting down Facebook and things like that. Now. It turns out that the tech guys are pretty smart, and they can frequently find some way to get Facebook back up. But it makes me nervous. I don't uh -huh. see the history of government as particularly optimistic. Uh -huh. and Which is why we have to like think about these things and work harder. Because one other quick minute, I'll get out of here. Uh, um, I was, and this is from my reading of Wikipedia, as a great Greek philosopher, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, etc., etc discussed different forms of government uh, when they looked at democracy. And this is 5,000 years ago. They said it never works because over time it breaks down to a battle between the rich and the poor and always ends up in a dictatorship. So thank you. Winston Churchill was claimed that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. But that doesn't make it good. <laughs> it just might make it least bad. On uh, one of your slides, you mentioned uh, negative income tax as a uh, possible uh, government policy. 
And I thought that was uh, interesting. Is that because you think that some redistribution is merited or that there is I a, don't. Or that there is a role for government in alleviating poverty or that the disutility to society from a certain degree of poverty is so great that that in itself is a good argument? So my view on redistribution, on government redistribution, would be zero federal redistribution. Okay, so you know, Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment, whatever, just zero. Okay, in terms of how to get rid of it, put it all in one huge block grant, freeze the nominal amount of that block grant, and then you know, and whittle it away over time. So you're not throwing it on the states, you know, just in one fell swoop, but you're basically phasing it out over 10 years, 15 years. At the state level, I put it there because I think, one, there are some people who are strongly libertarian-leaning, but on a vast majority of the issues, but they can't quite bring themselves to say that we sh government should do nothing to help people who are very low income. Okay? And of all the things we could do, a negative income tax is probably the least bad way to provide anti-poverty measure, at least bad anti-poverty policy. And if it's done state by state, okay, it's probably going to be pretty moderate because any state that has a really generous negative income tax is going to see an inflow of low-skilled people who are going to take advantage of it. Um, the second reason to put it there is that um, it just, it's too big a leap for a lot of people to say we're going from all the government redistribution we have now to zero. Okay? And so I think it's worth accepting the possibility that libertarian land could have a few things that libertarians don't really like, but that are not particularly awful, as long as they're done small, as long, and that will happen mainly if they're done at the state level. So, and I will show you, we'll talk explicitly about distribution and the evidence on what it does this afternoon. Yeah. Um, with the deontologist, they would let the chips fall where they may, as it were, uh, as long as the principles of liberty are there. Um, as but long it, as? As long as the policy is, is libertarian, they'll let the chips fall as they may, so to speak. Uh, whereas I see a consequentialist as having, you know, more a stronger appreciation of uh, path dependency to get okay. into that libertarian land. Um, and so, an example I'll give uh, is looking at Japan, for for instance, in their agrarian land reform. Uh, it, without that, I I don't see a path dependency from getting from where Japan was in 1945 to where it is today a much freer place, uh, but they had to, in the process, shuffle the deck on 75% of the land holdings. So from it, it, w with that path dependency, every step you take, you have to ask, should I go libertarian for now or for the future? Oh, I, I, if what you're saying is we could have gotten to a, okay, one sentence, one or two sentences. This says I have two minutes. You've got a minute and a half. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we won't go. Um, another good example, a, a similar example is slavery. I think you could have done a very libertarian approach to land reform or slavery, which is that you have to raise sufficient taxes to buy out the existing owners. North could have bought all the slaves. There's another policy could have done as well, I'll skip for the moment, that would have ended slavery without waging a war, without having to steal people's property that was legal under the existing laws at the time. So we can talk about the details of that afterwards. Thank you very much. See you this afternoon.